How goes it, Austin? Thank you for tuning in today on the premiere of Allensworth's Corner. I am your host, Ben Allensworth, here at the UT campus on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. i uh, got a great show in store for you. Going to talk about some post-Super Bowl thoughts that I had yesterday while I was at my internship. Uh, preview the baseball season, now that we got baseball uh, season coming up. And also going to dive into a little bit of NCAA tournament talk now that we've got the tournament coming up here in about a little less than a month away. Feel free to call in if you want. 512-232-5874 is the hotline. Any calls will come through and I will get you on. So yesterday, as I was sitting in my internship at 104.9 The Horn, I had an interesting thought with regard to the Patriots' defense. So we've been told over the past, I don't know, what, five, six, seven years that Bill Belichick is a defensive guru. Everything he touches just turns into solid gold with regard to the defensive side of the ball. You would think that makes sense, right? Because, I mean, this is a guy who's got three championships. He's appeared in two other ones. But then I started thinking, well, his defense has suffered the last four or five years. They have not been as good a defense as they've had in the past during their Super Bowl years. Um, All these different players that he's drafted, all these trades that he's made to get rid of older players— like Richard Seymour releasing Lawyer Malloy, not wanting to re-sign Asante Samuel. When we looked at that defense this year, other than Vince Wilfork, there was nobody on that defense that any offense was scared of. And this has been going on the last three or four years. His defenses have given up so many yards and so many points and have raked so far at the bottom. By getting rid of all these experienced players that he used to have, you would think that some of these players that he's been drafting have actually helped. But they haven't. They have not been producing. All these trades that he's made, all the players that he's been drafting— have not been producing. So I started thinking to myself, well, either is Bill Belichick as good of a defensive coach as we thought he was, or was Romeo Cornell the real kingpin behind the defenses in that New England uh, Super Bowl era run? Because you look at the offenses, no matter if it was Josh McDaniels, Charlie Weiss, or even Bill O'Brien this year, the offenses have stayed consistent and great their entire run that they've had throughout these playoffs these playoff runs these last couple of years. But you look at the defense, it's been a liability, an Achilles heel for so long now. I don't know why it just took me until yesterday to to think about this question. Was it really Romeo Cornell that deserved most of the credit for those defenses, or was it Bill Belichick? I'm not saying that Romeo Cornell deserves all the credit, but at the same time, I don't think he was appreciated and given enough props for what he actually did for those Super Bowl teams. I mean, you look at what he did with Kansas City this year once he actually took over the helm. They beat the Green Bay Packers. They made it look real bad for Tim Tebow when he was out there on, on Week 17 when they absolutely needed a win to guarantee a playoff spot. And what they hold him to? Three? Seven? Seven, three? Yeah, they held him to three points. My point is eventually we're going to find out within the next few years here coming up if it was really Romeo Cornell who was the bread and butter behind that defense and the real kingpin or if it was Bill Belichick. And we're going to find that out because Tom Brady's only got maybe three, five years left in the league. And when Tom Brady retires, what do you think Bill Belichick's going to do? That's when we're going to find out if, if he's really the defensive guru because he's going to need to have a stout defense those first couple of years after Brady retires in order to make up for the offensive loss, which is what's going to come when Brady retires. I mean, there's no way that offense is going to be clicking. So he's going to need a defense to pick up the slack. And if he can't get a defense together, 
six to eight years after Romeo Cornell left. I think that says a lot about what was going on during those times and that Romeo Cornell was a lot more valuable to this Patriots defense than what we all thought. Either that or it's a lot easier to make defensive schemes with a video camera when people aren't looking. There were two other things that stood out during the Super Bowl to me. One, for I can't believe Wes Welker actually dropped a pass. I mean, but the, the backlash that he's gotten throughout this entire past, what, four days since the Super Bowl happened? Everybody seems to want to be putting the blame on Wes Welker for dropping that pass. And granted, if Wes Welker catches that pass, the Patriots have the ball at the giant 20-yard line with about five minutes left to go, and the Giants only have one timeout and the two-minute warning. The Patriots, worst-case scenario, they get a field goal. They make it a five-point game, and they milk off enough time to where there's probably about two minutes to a minute and a half left in the game. The Giants would have still had to go down the field with a minute 30 and no timeouts, and they still may have actually scored. We don't know that. And with the cold-bloodedness of Eli Manning, it's very possible that it could have happened. What people aren't talking about is how bad Tom Brady threw that pass. Go back and look at that. Wes Welker is wide open. He gets by both defensive backs who are confused before the play is even snapped, and they're not ready by the time the ball is actually snapped. Tom Brady has Wes Welker wide open. If he throws it to the inside shoulder, he is gone. That is a touchdown waiting to happen. And instead, he throws it behind him. But nobody's talking, and this happened throughout the entire, near the end of the third quarter, throughout the entire fourth quarter. I don't know if it had to deal with Tom Brady getting his shoulder crushed when Justin Tuck got that sack late in the third quarter to make the Patriots punt. He was all over the place after halfway through the third quarter. That was one instance. Another instance, he throws the first and ten pass on the drive that they needed to score a touchdown. He throws it right to Antrell Roll, who should have picked it off, by the way. And nobody is mentioning the fact that that ball was tipped by Antrell Roll. They keep saying that Deion Branch dropped that ball. Well, not only was the ball tipped, but even if had it not been tipped, the ball was thrown so far behind Deion Branch that he wouldn't even be able to catch it. Later on in the game, I can't remember what down was, he throws another pass to Deion Branch over the middle. Deion Branch is wide open. He finds a seam in the zone of, uh, of the Giants' defense. He is wide open. All he has to do is sit down in that pocket Brady deliver a nice clean strike, and it is a first down waiting to happen. And instead, another example, Brady throws it right behind him. And uh, of course, just like the West Welker play, Deion Branch got his hands on the ball. So you could say that anytime a receiver gets their hands on the ball, they're supposed to catch it. But when that, when you're a receiver and you're expecting that pass to be thrown either in front of you or at least a little bit down to keep away from the defense, to have it being thrown behind you when you're on the run, you have to stop turn around, move your body around, and somehow catch the ball that Brady threw, that low pass to the outside of Deion Branch, and yet people aren't mentioning how that wasn't a bad throw. So the fact that Wes Welker has taken the blame in the Boston area over the last three days isn't all warranted because, I mean, yes, you could say that he was supposed to catch it, and the fact is, had he caught it, it's more than likely with the percentages that the Patriots would have won the Super Bowl. But Tom Brady did not play that good. He did in the first half. But down the stretch when it really counted, he did not perform the way that you would expect Tom Brady to perform. Throwing behind receivers, taking sacks, taking that safety in the first play of the game, First off, why you would even call that play, I, that's a little bit of a surprise to actually decide to throw a bomb like that on the first play of the game in his own end zone. They should have at least ran some sort of play to get him out so in case he does throw that pass and they do get crossed up, they at least gain some yardage before so there's not a uh, chance of getting a safety. It's as if that because he's won three Super Bowls, Tom Brady can't get any criticism at all. And once Giselle Bungeon, that's another thing, Giselle Bungeon coming out, First off, she knew there were cameras there. You cannot tell me that she walked down that entire hallway, saw those two camera crews that were there, and didn't know that her conversation was getting recorded. 
and didn't know that her conversation wasn't going to be overheard and replayed on SportsCenter and everywhere else that it's been played on. She knew that was coming. She knew it. Everybody knows that. And the fact that she threw those receivers under the bus, and yeah, she's defending her man, but her man had a lot to do with those passes being dropped. The Aaron Hernandez one, I'll give her that one. That guy just straight up missed that ball. But throwing that deep pass to Gronkowski with one foot, I know it's a linebacker, Chase Blackburn, but you cannot rely on throwing that pass to Gronkowski, who could barely get off the ground pregame and expect him to catch that ball. However, he did seem to get off the ground pretty good at the nightclub later that night, but that may have been a little uh, alcohol-related. Who knows? It's kind of surprising that everybody thinks it's some sort of upset, like 2007 when the Giants beat the Patriots, that it happened again, and it's really not. They shouldn't even have been there. They were two fingertips away from not even being there, thanks to Lee Evans. So, I mean, they should be happy that they even made it to a Super Bowl, let alone almost won the Super Bowl. That's why Patriot fans should be happy. I mean, look at the Cowboys. They haven't made the Super Bowl in forever, so the fact that they actually made a Super Bowl is a pretty good accomplishment, and they're going to be good for another couple years. Coming up on Allen's Worst Corner, I will talk about the upcoming baseball season, preview some of the teams that are favorites to win the World Series, and maybe even make some projections about the World Series. But first, I want to talk about Pluckers. If you're ever looking for a good time, good food, and a good environment, Pluckers is the place to be. With locations all across Austin, such as Round Rock, 183, Rio Grande, Pluckers is there to serve for you. Got some great wings there today at the 183 location with my girl Bailey. Had a good time, got filled up, got some great food, great price. Guys, if you're ever looking for a nice, chill environment, Pluckers is the place to be. And if you don't like the wings, they'll give you the bird. Ben Allensworth here on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're having a good day. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit from the post-Super Bowl talk now that football will be gone for a while, but who knows? It's football. I mean, we'll probably still end up talking about it for a while. We're going to shift gears to baseball now that we got the baseball season coming up. And I can tell you, I'm pretty excited. As a Ranger fan, I have gotten a little damper to start, though, with the whole Josh Hamilton story. It's kind of like the distraction that you just don't want to hear. It's kind of like when you're about to go on spring break when you're in high school and progress reports are about to come out and you get that progress report coming to your parents and your parents just yell at you, tell you you're not going to be able to do what you want for spring break. That's kind of how this is. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of one of those head scratches. It's like, okay, you're excited for the season and then right before the season's about to start, boom, you get hit with this on the side of the head. And it's just a bad story for this, as far as the Rangers and Ranger fans are concerned, with the whole alcohol and drugs and cheating on your wife, and now he's about to be a free agent and he's probably wanting around a hundred million. And, and some people say yes, some people say no to that. Um, it's just, it's just something you don't want to have happen right before the season starts. Let's just say, especially if you're wanting a hundred million dollar contract, let's just say that's the last thing that he probably should have been doing right around this time. But let's jump into the season. I have a hard time, a real hard time, not seeing how an American League team will not win the the World Series this year. A really hard time, in fact. Because you just look across the board. We'll start off with the National League. And we'll start off with the the St. Louis Cardinals. 
reigning World Series champs, great team, lose their manager, lose their best player in Albert Pujols. What's left? I mean, you still have Chris Carpenter. You could have Adam Wainwright coming back from uh, Tommy John surgery. They still have some decent players, but the team has lost a lot of its luster compared to what it had with Albert Pujols. When you go up and down the list, the only two teams in the National League that have a chance of a legitimate World Series team, the Philadelphia Phillies with the hitting and the pitching that they have, and the San Francisco Giants with their pitching, if they can get their hitting during the season and they get situational hitting during the playoffs. But then you go down the American League. Compared to those two teams, the San Francisco Giants and the Philadelphia Phillies, you transfer that to the American League. You got the Los Angeles Angels with Albert Pujols, Jared Weaver, C.J. Wilson, Irvin Santana, Dan Heron. You have the Texas Rangers. Yes, they lose C.J. Wilson, but they pick up Hugh Darvish. They still have the entire rotation that they had last year with Holland and Feliz and Ogando, and then they still have the hitting. Beltre and Hamilton and Michael Young and Andrews. We're going to have to see how the Hamilton situation plays out. You go to the Central, you have the Tigers. With the rotation that they had last year, Verlander, Scherzer, and Porcello. This year, Porcello is actually going to be on the team the entire year, not just a half, not just a trade deadline acquisition. So now they have a significantly better rotation to start off the year than they did last year, to go along with the fact that they just signed Prince Fielder and they have Miguel Cabrera. The Achilles heel for that team, and we're going to have to see this later, is the, the fielding. The, the amount of errors that the Detroit Tigers are going to make in the field is going to be insane if, if Miguel Cabrera ends up moving to third and Prince Fielder stays at first. Because these are two of the worst first basemen in the league, fielding percentage-wise. And now Cabrera's going to get moved to third. And they tried that experiment in, I think, 2006 or 2007. And it did not work well for them at all. And now they think they're going to have an offseason. They're going to try and get him to be able to become a third baseman in one offseason. That's going to be interesting to see. Especially since the Rangers did that with Michael Young. And that took him two years to even become a somewhat decent third baseman, let alone just one offseason for Miguel Cabrera. And who knows, this may just be a rent-a player. They're going to figure out maybe it'll be like a, a one-year thing and then they'll trade Fielder who, or trade Cabrera. We'll have to see. But not many people were thinking that they were going to get Fielder. So they've definitely got an offense and they got some pitching, but that fielding is going to be uh, one big problem if they can't get that figured out real quick. Then you go to the, the East with the Red Sox and the Yankees and even the Rays. The Rays have... Just like the Angels and the Philadelphia Phillies, one of the best rotations in all of baseball. Will their key personnel moves that they've made as far as letting some acqui- letting some players go like Johnny Damon, will that hurt them offensively? Because, I mean, they still have Longoria, but the question will be whether they can get enough offense during the year to make up for that great pitching that they have. The Red Sox got a new manager, got some new personnel coming in, a new new GM. That's going to be interesting to see if they can rebound from the collapse that they had last season, just like the Braves, they choked. That'll be interesting to see, especially what they'll do with some of the players that they had last year that were involved in that beer controversy, like John Lackey, Josh Beckett, David Ortiz. We'll have to see. And then the Yankees. The Yankees are always talked about as World Series favorites, but lately you can't take it serious that they're going to win World Series. With the acquisition of Michael Pineda to go along with Mariano Rivera, Mark Teixeira, A-Rod if he can stay healthy, with the speed that they've got with Gardner and the fielding that they have, they've got a pretty good fielding percentage too. They have some quality pitching with, now that they have Pineda and Ivan Nova, the one wild card is A.J. Burnett if they're actually going to get anything for him. Can they trade him or are they going to get any sort of consistent production out of him? That'll be interesting to see. This was supposed to be the year that we had the five teams make the playoff with the extra playoff or with the extra wild card spot, but now 
Apparently, their main, the extra wild card spot may not be in place by this year. So we may still have just the f- regular four teams make the playoffs. And you're looking at the American League. You look at, at those six teams and only four are going to make it compared to if there were five and only one being left out. It'll be very exciting and interesting to see how, how the wild card seed plays out because normally the wild card seed will go to the American League East. But if you have the Rangers and the Angels battling, one of those two teams very well could win the wild card. And if Boston doesn't perform the way that they should perform, then really it's going to be between the Rays and the runner-up between the Rangers and the Angels for the wild card spot. And we'll just have to see. I don't know. As far as World Series predictions go, I just don't see how you cannot go with the Phillies and the Angels. As a Ranger fan, that just kills me to say that the Angels are American League favorites. But with the rotation that they have, if Irvin Santana is your fourth best pitcher and you're going to be throwing out Jared Weaver, Dan Heron, and C.J. Wilson with the offense that they have, if if indeed they keep Mike Trout and Peter Borges' speed, along with Kendrick Morales, Pujols, Miseris Tourist, they are so fundamentally defensively sound with power and speed and that top four in the rotation. I just don't see how they can't make it to the World Series and how they're not favorites in the, in the American League. And they'll be going up against the Phillies, in my opinion. If you, I mean, that, that's that got seven-game series written all over it, if you ask me, with the rotation that both the Phillies and the Angels have. I'm not going to say who I'm going to pick because I, I still don't know who I'm going to pick yet. But those are the two teams that, I would, at the moment, I would say are World Series favorites. Coming up next, we'll talk about the NCAA tournament and see what the Longhorns need to do in order to ensure themselves of a tournament bid. Up next on Allen's Worst Corner. Hey everybody, if you're looking for a nice smooth beer to enjoy during the NBA season, Coors Light is the beer for you. Not only is it triple brew, but it also has a nice cold activation window which lets you know when your beer is ready to drink and at prime performance. It's a light beer, so it not only has half the calories, but it also doesn't subtract from the taste. So men and women out there, if you're looking to protect your figure while at the same time enjoying a nice beer, Coors Light is the beer for you. Available at any grocery store and convenience stores located near you. Welcome back to Allensworth's Corner. I am your host, Ben Allensworth, for our third and final segment of the day. We talk about a little NCAA tournament. Selection Sunday coming up, about a month, a little bit more than a month to go. Uh, specifically focusing on Longhorn basketball, since we are here in Austin. With the way the season's played out and there aren't too many teams that will have a gripe when it comes to Selection Sunday, so it is very possible for the Longhorns to still come back and get themselves into the tournament. I mean, they still have tons of time to get the signature win that they need. They've got, they still have Kansas State, Baylor, and Kansas still on the schedule. Really, if you think about it, if they can handle their business against the teams they need that they should beat, i.e. Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and Texas Tech, that'll put them at 10-6 and in the Big 12 and 19-9 and overall. Now you have the Baylor game and the Kansas game and the Kansas State game. They really need to win one of those three. Would I consider this Saturday against Kansas State a must-win? No. Is it an important win? Yes. But would it be a must-win? No. The must-win would be if they lose this week, they must beat Baylor at home. That would be the signature key win that they need. Because other than that, who, who what do they have on the schedule that they could rep as a big win? I mean, you got UTA who's got 19 or 20 wins in the Southland Conference. You have Boston and UCLA who maybe can make it to the Pac-12 tournament. And Temple? Temple's pretty good. But other than that, don't have the key signature win that they would need to get themselves into the tournament. You can't expect them, with what they lost coming into this season, 
to have been anywhere from a four to a, a seven seed and actually make it some distance in the tournament. Let's just say the Sweet 16. You can. There's no way that with what the Longhorns lost this year that they were going to ever make the Sweet 16. It'd be a real accomplishment if they could actually make the tournament with what, with what they lost and what they still had left on the team before all these incoming freshmen came in. Around Austin, nobody's really talking about the Longhorn basketball team, and there's a reason for that. Because right now they have underperformed. When you think about the players that they were getting in and everything that we heard coming into basketball season with players like Mike Cabongo and Julian Lewis and all these other parts that were coming in, everybody was saying, hey, you know what, with with Mike Anderson leaving Missouri and and Kansas losing all that talent they had and really only Thomas Robinson coming back from that team, and man, well, the only team we're going to have to worry about is Baylor. Like we, we have a real shot of being a real underdog and actually winning winning a lot of games making it to the tournament maybe making a little bit of damage in the tournament but it hasn't worked out that way i mean i mean that's that's what should be expected they're freshmen freshmen just can't come in with the exception of some teams like kentucky kentucky's like one of the only schools that can constantly recruit all americans bring those freshmen in win about 20 to 25 games get a number one or a number two seed do some damage in the tournament you can't expect a team like texas who doesn't recruit those types of players to come, literally sign about five or six freshmen, instantly put them in the offense with no post presence at all, and be able to win 20, 22 games, get somewhere between the top three and the Big 12, and make some damage in the NCAA tournament. That's just not going to happen. And it's it's unrealistic, and that's what we expect nowadays, is that everyone expects this now from their teams, that even despite the fact that there's not much talent on the team or young, talented players on the team, we still expect teams to be able to go out and perform that the way they did the year before, even without their core that they had. There's no way that this Saturday is a must-win. All Texas really needs to do is take care of business against Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, and either win the Baylor game or the Kansas game. That way, they'll at least have a signature win on their schedule. They'll have 10 wins in the Big 12, and they'll assure themselves of at least probably a top five seed a five seed in the Big 12, which would match them up against Kansas State or an Iowa State. And if they win that game, if they win that first tournament game of the Big 12 tournament, they win that first Big 12 tournament game, I think it's a lock that Texas will make it. So you can't go look at this Saturday's game as a must-win. Look at it as a bonus. With the games that they have coming up, there should be no problem with them winning at least four. But if they can beat either Kansas State, Baylor, or Kansas, preferably Baylor or Kansas, they've got themselves in pretty good position. Barring not losing a first-round game, in the Big 12 tournament, they put themselves in pretty good position to at least make the tournament. What they'll do once they make the tournament, that'll be left to be seen. But until then, Longhorn fans should just be happy with the team having a winning Big 12 record, having an overall winning record, making the Big 12 tournament, and maybe winning a game or two in the Big 12 tournament. If they don't make the, if they don't make the NCAA tournament, yes, that's not great, but the fact of the matter is, with the team that they had and the players that they still had left over, you can't expect them to have been able to put together any sort of run in this year's team. But when you expect next year's team, with all the freshmen that they had, and then the the incoming freshmen they're going to have, that's a team where if the Longhorns don't finish in the top three or four in the Big 12, then you can have a problem with the way everything's going, especially with Rick Barnes and the way everything's going. But next year's team will make up for any disappointment that Longhorn fans have in this year's team. That's all the time we have left for today in this edition of Allensworth Corner. I am your host, Ben Allensworth. Hope you tune in next time, and until then, I am out.